Uh, no, guys, today is the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? You understand? So, so uh, we ought not uh, be tired, right? Uh, or, I don't know, bored, you know, because he just went to hell and, like, stole the keys and led captivity captive and came back resurrected, Right? And you guys are acting like, oh, I don't know, like it's Monday morning. <laughs> so we need to wake up, and we need to be excited. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 this morning, and Jasmine is going to be reading the review passage for us, okay? So let's uh, open the word, let's take a look, and what, verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's great. Um, dear Heavenly Father, God, just thank you for this morning um, and just the fact that we get to live in the reality of um, your son's death, Lord, every single day. And I pray that we never get carried away from that or run away from that, God, and that we die to that every single day, um, just like Christ did for us, and that we carry up our cross. And Lord, I pray for Brandon, just speak through him, and I pray for our hearts. Um, I just pray that we're present with you, God, that we're free of distraction, Lord, and that we're just humbled before your word. Yes. And um, that we just let it have rule over our life, God, and that we apply it to our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, Jake got saved this week. Just ask Jesus Christ into his heart, that's all. Eternally, uh, eternally separated uh, from God until he made that decision. Right? And now, now forever with Jesus. That's a big deal, I think. Yeah? Um, man, it's good to see so many visitors this morning. I know on Easter that's kind of how it works, and so it's good to see you. I'd like a chance to meet a lot of you. Uh, if you have, I'd like to meet all of you, but I know how it goes. People have to rush out of here to go eat fried chicken and whatnot. Um, so you do what you need to do. But I'd like to meet you if you're a visitor and this is your first time. I'd love to, to, to shake your hand and, and introduce myself. Uh, my name is Brandon, and this is Kaya. This is college and young adults class. Uh, if you accidentally don't like you came here by, by mistake, um, I just want to clarify that. You're in the college and young adults ministry right now. Um, and we've been studying in Romans chapter 13. Joel, are you with me? I mean, you look so sharp. <laughs> like, did you wake up at 4 in the morning to get ready? No? Okay. All right, so you're alive and awake and ready to roll. Okay. All right, so... We've been in Romans, and uh, a Roman, uh, the, the letter of Romans, Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And he wrote it with the intent that he would uh, explain to them uh, the basics of their salvation. The basics of their salvation. That, that was his intent. Uh, he wanted to explain to a young church full of young believers, uh, new Christians, what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. All the things that came along with that. It's the ABCs of our salvation. Not, not the ABCs because uh, it's elementary, but ABCs in that it's foundational to their growth and development. And Romans has been that for us as well. Um, this letter is a powerful word from God that teaches us what it means to be forgiven. That's how, how it begins. That's how the letter begins. What it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ what the future holds for followers of Christ, and how to live according to our faith. That's what this letter is about. And really, without Romans, our New Testament just definitely wouldn't be complete. 
It's, an, it's a crucial book uh, in the New Testament. This section of the letter, though, uh, the, the section that we are in, we're referring to as the gospel in practice. The gospel in practice. In other words, what Christianity looks like when it's lived out. Now, this is super important because I think a lot of us are, are pretty well convinced that Christians are hypocrites. Right? That most Christians don't live what they espouse. And so this portion of the letter has been really challenging for us because for many of us, we have an idea of what it means to be spiritual. We have, we have an idea of what it means to be saved even, to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But all of us are a work in progress who are coming to a place where we acknowledge and understand and are living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be conformed to his image, to live and act just the way that Jesus would. And that's what this portion uh, is about. Uh, God has a purpose for our living. And he has modeled for us in his word what it means to live and act like him. Him. He has asked us to both preach the gospel and live it out. For the Romans, uh, one of the biggest detractors in their faith and their ability to live out their faith in pursuit of Christ was their oppressive government. All right? Now we're honing in. We're zooming in. Um, last, uh, last, uh, it wasn't last week, the week before his teaching, the beginning of Romans chapter 13. Their major oppressors were the government and the authorities that surrounded them, a society that within just a few years of Christ's resurrection had already developed a culture of persecution. So Christians were surrounded by people that were hostile to them, people in authority, people in, in, in power that were uh, not sure what to do with these Christians. And so they created a system. And if you read the history, you can read it. It's all there. Uh, in Rome, many, many different leaders with many different approaches on what to do with the Christians. Exiling some, killing some, harming others, imprisoning. Many, many different approaches about what to do with the Christians. And so to read this part of the letter would have been very shocking for the Romans. Because we see in chapter 13, Paul focuses attention on how to live in subjection to higher authorities. Regardless of opposition, regardless of persecution, how a Christian should act as it concerns the people in power over them. So let's just walk through this briefly, shall we? Okay? Yeah? We learn first that our authorities are only in their positions of power because God desired them to be so. All right? Not just because we have voted them into office, just not, not just because they're of the right empirical order or they're of, of, of an elite class. God has something in mind when he allows someone to be in a position of authority and he leverages it to his liking. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So the first thing that we learn is that all of the authorities in our life, from the president down to your boss, are there for a reason. And you don't have to understand why. You just have to know that God is at work in doing so. And then he has something in mind. He has something in mind for them, and he has something in mind for you. We also learned... We learn that those that resist their authority endanger themselves by inviting unnecessary wrath. And those that obey the laws, the laws of the land, have really nothing to fear. In other words, this portion of scripture also teaches us that if we are to obey the ordinances that are put in place, then we will be able to live peaceable lives going under the radar that we might have influence for the gospel's sake. If you're busy protesting your politicians, then you're probably distracting from the real mission at hand. If you're busy angry at your authorities, then you're probably looking towards an agenda that is outside of the true mission of God, and that's to preach the gospel to every soul. We can get really obsessed and distracted easily from the thing that we're supposed to be doing. Verse 2, Romans 13, verse 2, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth... The ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. That's a, that's a, a physical uh, damnation, not eternal one. For rulers 
are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. There's a lot there. We're not going to break that down again. If you're interested, you can go back and listen to the message. But what we learn here is that it's the job of our authorities to set rules and ordinances that we abide by, that we live by. Okay? And it's important that we obey the laws of the land. It's important. That's what God teaches us here in his word. Third, we learn that what our government asks for in terms of taxes and tolls, as well as respect and honor, both physical and emotional things that the government asks of us, we ought to give them. We ought to give them. Romans 13, 6 says, For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. What the rulers of our land ask of us, we ought to give them. If it's a tax, we pay the tax. Jesus said this himself, didn't he? Right? Give to, to, to Caesar what is due to Caesar. And this, this is exactly what Paul's teaching here. In order to live peaceably, it's our responsibility to pay our taxes, to pay our tolls. All right? Does anybody, is it, no, I don't want this too personal. Let's say, does anybody owe anything this year? We, we came out real good this year, tax-wise. Uh, some of you all probably owe something. Um, but we've got, to pay, we've got to pay our taxes, right? But we also have to pay with honor and fear and respect, right? Because God put those people in the position that they're in, and they deserve a level of honor. We also learn that when the, the authorities in our lives seek honor and make requests that usurp God's authority, when they come in conflict, when the things that they ask of us come in conflict with obedience and adherence to God's word, then we have to refuse them and put God first. We have to refuse them and put God first. In other words, the one that ordained them and put them in the position that they're in, we ought to obey him first because he has ultimate authority and power. And so when our rulers ask us to do and to live things that go against our coming conflict with God's word, we have to put God first. And we see this testimony played out over and over again in scripture. We see it in, in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, right? What was Daniel standing accused of? Of praying to a God that wasn't, wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, right? He was, he was giving his authority and his allegiance to God in direct conflict to the fact that he had been asked not to do so. And he prayed with his windows open because he knew that God was his primary authority. Now, he was obedient in every way to the king and the ruler of the land, right? In fact, he was useful to the king. He served the king faithfully. But yet we find him obeying God first. He could not break the laws of God. Now listen, these, these teachings would have sounded revolutionary to the Romans in the first century. It would have been very difficult for these Christians to hear this teaching. But the truth is, it's just as revolutionary today. It's just as revolutionary today in our time. In a world that justifies and even glorifies the disrespect of authority, Paul's words come in direct conflict with many of our daily habits. Treating our parents disrespectfully. Talking bad about our bosses and our teachers and instructors. Speaking vile words about our political leaders. We've made habits of doing these things. And in fact, we glory in them. We glory in them. We, we think that revolt is a virtue. That's what we think. We think that protest, that protest is the highest signifier of a, of a, of a conscious and moral person. And the truth is, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with protest. There's definitely occasion for it. But my point is, for a Christian, that's not our primary ob objective. And that is not the measuring rod for whether or not you are a moral individual. Paul doesn't say that we need to agree with our authorities. 
Just that we need to respect them and even give to them what they require. The idea of respecting our authority begins to spill over into this next portion of Scripture, okay? What we're going to learn today. Just as we are to render to our authorities those things due to them, we are to render, listen, listen carefully, we are to render to mankind what is owed them. The love of Christ. And what we're going to focus on today is this idea that we are indebted to love. We are indebted to love. And we're going to learn about love today. All right? And it seems very fitting on a Resurrection Sunday for us to talk about love. I'm going to pray again, and then we're going to get right into verse 8. Are you ready? We're just going to cover two verses today. Okay? The gospel in practice, our love. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, you are the ultimate uh, example of love. You are the embodiment of love. And Lord, without you, we, can, we cannot even imagine uh, what it means to live a life of love. Um, we, can, we can imagine and hypothesize, and we can think about love theoretically, and we can come to our own conclusions about what it means to love, but Lord, we will never land there. We will never get to a place where we truly love others if we don't know you. So I pray, Lord, if there are people here this morning who don't know you, uh, perhaps they've grown up religious and uh, they've practiced uh, spiritual things, um, but yet they've never come to know you as their personal Savior, Lord, I just ask that you would speak to them and that you would work that out in them this morning, that they would confess you, that they would repent of their sin and come to know you uh, and the love that you are. So Lord, help us this morning. Help us, for those of us who fail to live in light of love. Um, God, would you teach us this morning of what it means to practice the love that you teach, what it means to submit ourselves and yield ourselves to the moving of the Spirit and adhere to the truths of your Scripture that we might be conformed to Jesus Christ's image and, and actually embody love ourselves. That's what we need today. So would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 13, 8, the, the, the first thing we see is an obstacle, an obstacle to our love. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe uh, no man anything but to love one another. First and foremost, we must acknowledge the issue of debt. Just as we are to render to Caesar what is due Caesar, we are to live assured that we owe no man anything. That we have no unpaid debt. Okay, it's a kind of funny place to start a passage about love. But this is where we're going to start. The question is, do you stand indebted to other people? Indebted to other people. We must avoid indebtedness to our brethren and to the world. See, when we stand in debt, when we talk about debt, I'm talking about all kinds of debt. Sometimes we have emotional debt. It hasn't been paid up. Maybe there's someone that you need to seek forgiveness from. All right? We can talk about debt in many different ways. We can talk about it physically. Right? We can talk about it in terms of material things. Do you owe people money? Are you in bondage to people in terms of your finances? Why is this important to love? That's, that's what we want to ask this morning. But we ought not stand in debt to people. When you are constantly concerned with your finances and worldly constructs, it becomes increasingly impossible to you f- for you to focus on spiritual things. And that's just the truth of the matter. Some of you guys have debt, and so you work too much. Some of you have two jobs. And you work and work and work because you're trying to pay off someone. And that work competes with following Christ. It competes with being at church. It competes with fellowship. It competes with accountability. Right? And so your financial debt can actually be a a, a direct hindrance to, to the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Many of you are living in light of a budget that is so restrictive because of debt, because of financial debt, so restrictive that you couldn't go out and get coffee with, with one of your sisters or brother from church, if you even wanted to. Some of you guys are so concerned about your budgets. And now, listen, we've talked about finances in this class quite a bit. And if you 
know that you have financial issues and you're trying to work those things out, then I highly recommend, this is a plug right now, I recommend you go back, okay, go to Kaya.live, go back in our sermon series and you'll find a four-part financial series that was taught here about a year ago. And that helps a lot of people deal with the debt that's in their life. But the truth of the matter is, if we stand in bondage to human beings because of debt, it absolutely will come in conflict at some point with the mission that God has given us. It will. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower is servant to the lender. Now, not only, not only should we avoid indebtedness, but we can find pretty quickly that debt, debt is a bad testimony of stewardship. When we've got a lot of debt, and we owe the credit card company lots of money, all right? Now, there's good debt and bad debt, and we don't have time to get into that, okay? But, but my point is, when you stand in debt to people who have essentially taken advantage of you, maybe a, a loan for a car, and it's oppressive in your life, right? There's all kinds of things. There's loan, there's loan sharks on every corner. And people fall prey to them all the time. And when you do, it's often a bad testimony of the stewardship that God's given you. How can we clearly communicate the economy of God if we struggle to understand the economy of man? Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 16. Some of you heard it when you were, went through the cost of discipleship course. Verse 9 says, And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may, re- may receive you into everlasting habitations. Listen, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, if you haven't been faithful with the basic things like money, like physical, temporal things, who will commit to you your trust the true riches, the spiritual riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? In other words, your ability to handle your finances well is an absolute reflection of whether or not you're going to be able to handle spiritual things well. I hope that some of that uh, I hope that convicts some of you this morning, because some of us in this room are absolutely in bondage financially, and it will hinder our work to follow the Lord. It it will it will come in conflict. Here's our key point. Financial debt makes us servants to people out of obligation, out of obligation, rather than servants of people out of love and freedom. You understand? Financial debt makes us servants to people out of obligation rather than servants of people out of love and freedom. Now, this is my point. We're supposed to be servants to humanity, regardless of our debt, right? Regardless of our financial debt, we are called as believers to live a life of servanthood to all of mankind. But we don't want to be constrained to be servants of people. We want to be constrained to be servants to people. Does this make sense? There's a huge difference In one position, we stand in a deficit. And in the other situation, we abound in grace. And we've got to keep that in mind because when we owe mankind anything other than love, we stand in conflict with the true mission. Ultimately, Paul tells us to owe man no thing. Not because it's bad financial practice, which it is, but because physical and material debt are a distraction to loving one another. Are you guys bored? I need some water. Is anybody else dealing with allergies? I took a Mucinex. 
before I before I came into the pulpit. And I feel better, but my throat's a little dry. <laughs> yeah. You guys are so serious this morning. <laughs> okay, maybe it's my fault. Maybe some of you guys are like, oh man. I owe my mom a thousand dollars. Everybody's facing her so straight. Okay, here's the other thing that's important. Love is entrusted to us as Christians. It's entrusted to us. Owe no man anything but to love one another. So there is something that is owed. It's love. Listen, listen carefully. Christ's mission was and is to pay the sin debt of mankind. Right? To pay the sin debt. An incomprehensible spiritual deficit is what every person carries from the moment that they're, they're born. They, they, they're born into a deficit because of sin. And our best efforts could never, ever repay it. As good as we want to be, as righteous as we want to be, we could not be made righteous without Jesus Christ. That's why he came into the world. That's why he died and rose again, is to pay our sin debt. Now listen carefully. But, but, upon our salvation, the day that we, that we take that, and we accept it and receive it and find forgiveness in him. And we're made righteous. Upon our salvation, the custody of his mission has then, at that moment, been entrusted to those who are set free and made, uh, made at liberty to love. We're pardoned to love. We're set free to love. We're entrusted with the work of love. That's what happens the day we accept him. Love is enjoined to Christians as the summary of our duty to one another. That's it. It is who we are. It's to love one another. That is who we are. That is the de definition of being a Christian, is to love one another. And we'll define that here in a moment. Our love is the byproduct of knowing God. 1 John 4.20 if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. That's pretty simple, isn't it? For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? It's basic logic, right? Now here's, here's the really powerful part. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God, love his brother also. Now listen very carefully. Our debt of love is one we will be paying down until the day we die. There is no fulfillment or satisfying this debt in our lifetime. You will not do it. We can't fulfill it with money and offering plates, which honestly only serve to cheapen the value of love. Like if you're convinced that your love will be paid off, the debt of love will be paid off because of what you put in the offering plate, then all you're seeking to do is cheapen what the, the true value of what love is. It's oversimplification. We can't appease the world's thirst for love through dutiful action or humanitarian efforts, which often only tarnish true love with our own pride and arrogance. That's what it does. We can pat ourselves on the back because we... We, had a, we helped pay for a, a well that was built in India. We pat ourselves on the back and we walk away thinking we're full of love. And we've paid some sort of debt to love. Our social policies don't fulfill this obligation, but only perpetuate our longing for true love. There is no instrument that can measure or satisfy this debt. Sorry. Christian, this is what you signed up for. Here's our key point. Love is the constant expenditure of being a Christian. It is an expense in your life that you have to pay every day that you live. This is what we've been set free to do, is to love. And we, and we honestly, 
ought to wake up in the morning with the intent to pay this debt every single day. The same way when we owe the tax collector money, all right, the same way we feel when we know that the person we owe money is going to call us, and we get that gut feeling in our gut, and we're like, that is how we ought to feel when we wake up knowing that we're indebted to love. We ought to desire to pay it. There's no threshold for loving others. Christ's love lived out and spoken is the constant requirement of our life. See, love is like an unquenchable fire that won't be satisfied no matter how much water you pour on it. The Christian mission requires love like that. That's what it requires. But listen, love to many people in the world is a mystery. Like even this morning, I've left love a little bit mysterious. We haven't quite defined it yet, have we? We'll get there, but listen to me. Love to most people is a mystery. It's not easily learned or understood. You know, uh, many religious people talk about love, don't they? Many different religions have a teaching on love. They espouse ideas of love. And in many of those teachings, you read it and be like, yeah, love, love, that's nice, that's love. But if you look at the whole of every religion, they fall short in their definition. They're unable. They leave it in kind of an esoteric, abstract place over here. It's very abstracting and open-ended. Many religious teachers that have established and created religions espouse love. But at the same time, they themselves are thieves murderers, and wicked. They're liars. They're false prophets, yet they're teaching love. So we're kind of left in their wake questioning, well, what is love? Religion fails to teach us. No, for most, whether religious or not, love is a mystery. Have you guys ever, have you ever asked a lost friend? Probably not. It'd have to be the right conversation. Maybe it's a bonfire conversation. Right? Hey, what is love? What is love? And have someone define that. I sometimes do that at school with my students. I'll ask them a question like that. Probably, I probably asked some of you guys that before. What do you think love is? What is love? And you'll get so many different types of definitions, right? You get so many different explanations of what people think love is, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Some people will describe love in terms of emotional things. Right? When their happiness is appeased by another individual. Or someone meets some sort of emotional need or emotional requirement that they have. That they they confuse that with love. Maybe they'll talk about it in terms of physical terms. Usually dudes. Want to talk about it in terms of physical things. Oh, love. Like love making. Right? And obviously this falls woefully short of a true definition of love. Some will describe it as enduring, and some, of it, some people will describe it as fleeting. More and more so, we describe love as a fleeting thing that comes and goes, and you have it only for moments in your life. I have even heard a student of mine say that love is a figment of our imagination. People use it as an explanation to justify their emotional wants And physical desires. They just made it up. So it helps them to explain away the things that they want. Right? So many people talking about love, but yet nobody can actually pinpoint it. Humanity struggles to comprehend love because they have never received it themselves. You know, I've often said that you don't learn to love as much as you receive it and dispense it. It's not an easy thing to learn love. Right? It's something that you receive and then dispense. For the Christian, we obviously know that love is real. And love looks like a person. Love looks like a person. Love is a divine person that preferred us over himself. That's what Romans chapter 12 teaches us. 
is that love is a divine individual named Jesus Christ who gave up a throne in heaven and sacrificed everything that he had from eternity past up until that point for the sake of our soul. That's what love looks like. And so we must begin there. If we're going to define what love is, that is where we have to begin. We must then ask ourselves, we know that love is real, but how do we identify it to the point that we can live it out? Well, the Bible does that for us. It does that for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man someone even dared to die. In other words, let's, hold, let's pump the brakes right here. What does that mean? That if even your bestest friend, right, who's only ever been good to you, only been righteous to you, it's hard to die for that person. That's hard to do. Right? That would be a hard thing to do. Give your life for their own. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when humanity had only ever just spit in his face and contradicted him with every action upon every turn, all we did is make a mockery of his name, and yet he still chose to come and die for every one of you. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. For God is love. He is love. So you cannot have love outside of him. It is an impossibility. You might call whatever you do love, but it is a woeful and a, 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 a weak variation and bastardization, honestly, of what true love is, because God is love. God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we've, we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. It's something that we receive in order to dispense. John 15, 13, Jesus says this. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Here's our key point. Love lived out, love lived out is personal sacrifice and the preference of others over ourselves. Love lived out is personal sacrifice on your part and the preferential treatment of other people over you. No other religious leader in all of history has ever modeled this the way Jesus Christ did. A perfect man, a perfect man, who did not deserve what he received. He took it willfully on the cross, preferring us over himself. But many of us as Christians live in hypocrisy because we refuse to live in such a way that would put other people, others' desires, others' wants over our own. We don't know how to live that way. Love lived out is a personal sacrifice and the preferential treatment of others over ourselves. Love is also the fulfillment of the law. Love is also the fulfillment of the law. <coughs> Let's look on. For he, and we're back in Romans 13. Look at, look at verse 2. For he that loveth another, I'm sorry, not 2, verse 8. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, 
Thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so listen to me. So to love others is to refuse sin, which is by its very nature selfish. Or selfish. So sin, in and of itself, guys, we all know, that sin is a very selfish thing. And so a person who lives to love lives without sin. Doesn't that make sense? Sin and love are completely incompatible. Well, let's talk about this issue of the law real quick. The law was left unfulfilled in our lives before Jesus Christ. We couldn't live it. So let's talk about the law. When we talk about the law, we're talking about Old Testament commandments that were left to believers, things that people had to adhere to in order to be uh, in right standing with God the Father. Okay? The laws of the Old Testament were intended to present us with a list of determined commands that were purely consequential in nature. In other words, cause and effect. You obey or you suffer the consequence. And that is how believers in God lived for a long time. Their faith, their faith, was, was uh, housed in their actions. Their faith was proven out in their actions. And it was purely a cause and effect scenario. In other words, it was extrinsic. The law was intended to be an expression of God's holiness. Right? It was intended to be an expression of God's holiness. And when we did not obey the law, we came in conflict with His holiness. We couldn't do it. Humanity couldn't do it. The law was intended to form in us an extrinsic value for obeying God. Extrinsic means having an external value. It should have had an external value. In other words, we wanted a desired outcome. We want a desired outcome. And so we live and we function in obedience to God because we want that a desired outcome. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's, so it's extrinsic. It's, it's external. This makes sense. This might be a little heady. I'm not trying to be. People lived, before Christ, lived in such a way where it, uh, a failure to adhere to Scripture or a failure to adhere to the commandments left them in a position of fear and, and they could never, ever do it. The law was unfulfillable. It was unfulfillable. And so people stood in their guilt. They stood guilty before God. But let's look at what the Bible says about what Christ did. Galatians 4.3 Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. That's what we're talking about, right? But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. They, see, God sent Jesus into the world with the intention of setting us free from the bondage of the law. Now, let's continue on. Galatians 5.1. Check this out. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty there, uh, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't be entangled with the bondage of the world. Be set free. Be at liberty. So listen. Listen. This is super important. God's intention that we be set free. To do what? To love. But if we get entangled with the world, then we fail to love. It gets in the way. It messes things up. Now listen, let's keep going. You'll you'll see where I'm going here. Galatians 5.18 teaches us that his spirit leads us when the law obligated us. His spirit leads us. Galatians 5.18. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. If ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. In other words, the Spirit that indwells every believer is what constrains us to do good, to live righteously, to fulfill the law. Not in obligation to the law, but in freedom from it. 
Okay, now, now, let's put the exclamation point on it. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, as well as joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Jesus Christ set us free from the rule of the law, replacing it instead with His Spirit, which by its very nature fulfills the law in love. So you say to yourself, well, I don't know how to love. Well, do you have the Spirit inside of you? Do you have God's very Spirit indwelling you? And if you do, you have been empowered to love. And to love with the abundance of Jesus Christ himself. Love is sourced in yielding to the Spirit in faith and to God's word. See, many Christians don't know how to love. Can we acknowledge that? Can we be real honest this morning and just say we know that many Christians, people who profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they do not know how to love. And the question becomes, well, if they have the Spirit inside of them and they've been set free from the law, well, what's their problem? What's your problem? What's your problem? Many Christians have no reality of salvation because they have left their love behind at the moment of their forgiveness. This is what happens. A young believer... They accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're thankful for what God did in their lives. They start going to church. They start attending church. But many people attend churches where they don't teach the word of God. So what's the, what is the Holy Spirit that now indwells this person supposed to do? If we don't fill our mind with the knowledge of God's word, how could we possibly live out the mind of Christ? How could we possibly know his character? How could we possibly know his heart, his will for our lives? You know, the issue with hypocrisy in the church and the failure to love is not in the fact that God has left us alone. It's in our failure to be disciplined in his word. He's filled us with his spirit. He's prepared us in every way possible. He's left us with a letter. He wrote us a letter. And yet, we fail to love. The problem is, in the church today, we've abandoned God's word. More so in the end times than any other time, perhaps, in the history of the church. I mean, it looks like the dark ages, guys. It looks like the dark ages out there. People don't have his word. People calling themselves Christians, but never sitting under the authority of the book. And this is why we fail to love. It's not because God hasn't defeated the law, and it's not because he hasn't given us away. He's given us his spirit. It's our inability to submit to the truths of his word. So in conclusion, the worship team can come up. Many of us, uh, many of us have found love in Christ, but we fail to live it. And so my question to you is, do you need discipleship? Do you need to be taught the book? I mean, it's a very, I think it's really sad. I think it's really sad that people don't know the Bible. I think it's very sad. Many Christians don't consider that. They're thankful for the fact that they have a pastor who knows the Bible, that went to seminary. They're thankful for what their pastor learned. And they're, they're grateful for the breadcrumbs that they're given. And the problem is we're satisfied with that. And because we're satisfied with that, our love is starving. And the debt that we owe that surrounds us, we don't know how to fulfill. We don't know how to live it. We don't know how to sacrifice for it. We don't know what to do. And the issue is, we're personally starving to know God's love ourselves. See, as we pour the book into ourselves, we're filled with the love and the gratitude that comes with knowing him. Having a relationship with Christ, guys, it's very, very simple. Okay, I can illustrate this a million different ways. My wife is sitting right back here. She's lovely and beautiful. I don't get to, call, I don't get to say I have a relationship with my wife if I don't talk to her. I don't get to say that. 
And the same thing is true of you, Christian. You don't get to say that you are a Christian and that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ if you don't spend time communing with him. And you ask yourself, well, why is it that I'm failing to live the life that I know should be true of a Christian? How is it that I'm failing to love people the way that Christ does? Because you don't know him. You've met him, but you don't know him. And so the invitation to... to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is extended to you. You can know Jesus. You can be taught his word. You can be taught to understand it and handle it for yourselves. And we call that around here, we call that discipleship. Now some of us, some of us have never found Christ. And you're here this morning. And this message sounds very foreign to you. But I'm telling you this morning, if love is what you're missing in your life, and you have never met Jesus Christ, if you've never found forgiveness, because the truth is, listen to me, we're lying to ourselves. If we say that we can love, but haven't been forgiven, because forgiveness is freedom from bondage. All of the feelings and the emotions and the oppression that come with being a sinner, knowing that you're a liar, knowing that you're a jerk, Knowing that you treat people uh, um, uh, wickedly, okay, is oppressive in our lives. The only way to be set free from the bondage of those things is to know Jesus Christ and to know that you've been forgiven of those sins. That you are a son or a daughter of the living God. It's the only way to be set free. You cannot ever know love unless you know that. And so my invitation to you as we sing is if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there'll be people standing up front. You come and talk to them, and they'll show you from God's word what it means to repent of your sin and follow after Jesus Christ. I love you guys. Thank you, thank you for being here on Easter. But do not leave this place having celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ without, without actually having received it. That would, be, that would be heartbreaking. I love you.